0: It's really a pleasure to, uh, to be here. Um, glad people would come out on a snowy day like today. How many of you are new to the practice? Anybody? New to the center? One person, okay. <laughs> Good. That means I can go right in. I came across a statement um, that I understand was attributed to Aldous Huxley, It's amusing, a bit scary, and it is also a deep uh, dharma insight that will open up the power of the two arrows teaching, which is the subject of tonight's talk. It goes like this. Five percent of the pain and difficulty that we experience in life is what life does to us. The remaining 95% 95% is what we do in response to that 5%. This is just a metaphor. Um, please remember, this as we proceed, the actual amount will vary from person to person. The basic point is that what we do to ourselves in response to what life does to us often has a much greater amount of significance in terms of our own Personal happiness has a tremendous significance. Like the Buddha's teaching, this starts from a place which could be where there's difficulty in life. And it may seem at first glance a little bit negative. But upon further investigation, it actually reveals to us um, uh, a great possibility for, for greater freedom because of the high percentage of our troubles that we actually cause ourselves if we cause them to ourselves then perhaps we can undo them the buddha used a very practical sense and used in a very practical sense the the notion that in life we there are the vicissitudes of Uh, pleasure, of pain, and of indifference in terms of feelings, that no matter what we experience, joys, sorrows, uh, strength of body, or illness in body, they can be experienced all through the lens of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. He says that there's a wheel of these feelings that continue to cycle, and that our life is cannot escape them. It's an unending cycle. This is one truth, a basic truth, a good starting point for looking into this teaching. A second truth that he talked about is the fact that we don't simply have these experiences of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, but built into each one of them is a response, is a reaction. So for pleasant experience, then we tend to crave, we tend to Go for it, we want more of it. For unpleasant experience, we tend to push away. And for neutral experience, we tend to either be indifferent or be confused a little bit. So he describe the nature of experience and how we respond to it, or the varying changes in experience. The 5% is what? The vicissitudes of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. the ninety five percent, metaphorically speaking, is the rest. It is the attachment, the aversion, and the indifference or confusion in response to that. I'd like to turn now to the sutta itself. Now, Sutta means teaching. It means uh, canonical teaching, one of these this actually comes from the earliest teachings of the Buddha in the early, it's called the early Buddhist canon. And uh, it, was, it was different baskets of teachings. One was some shorter teachings, it's called the Samyutta, and it came, comes from a teaching called the Vedana Samyutta, or feeling, a teaching on feeling. So a small part of this sutta is a teaching on the two arrows. It's the first part of the two arrows. The unenlightened being experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the enlightened being experiences the same things, the same feelings. However, when the unenlightened being encounters unpleasant feeling, he grieves, laments, beats his chest, and is distraught. There's some pretty interesting language, actually, in the early, (laughs) some pretty graphic language and is distracted, he feels two kinds of unpleasant feeling. One in the body and one in the mind. It is as if an archer shoots one arrow into a man and then a second arrow. The man would experience both arrows. Such is the unenlightened being. The enlightened being experiences the same unpleasant physical sensation but no mental suffering. The first arrow is felt, but not the second. We can see in terms of the unenlightened and the enlightened, the differences between the five and 95% that Aldous Huxley referred to. So let's look at both people and see how this happens. First, let's take me as an example for the unenlightened being, okay? <laughs> Pretty easy to do. And this is an example, um, it's fictitious, but with any good fictitious story, there are probably elements of truth. Uh, it's interesting when we write it, when I was writing the talk, you get, I got to know myself a little better by what re- was revealed when I, when came up when I was trying to deal with examples. So let's say I'm going into a restaurant, okay? And I'm walking uh, through a door, I'm talking to somebody, and so my hand is just pushed out. I, I, I caught a glimpse of the door a minute before, and I thought it was open. So I was walking through, and as I go through, the door slams on my hand. OK So I feel a pain in my finger from where it was slammed in the door. That's the first arrow. But immediately I have a reaction. I get angry first at myself, for not being mindful. Come on, I'm a meditator. How could I not pay attention to what I was doing? And I get mad at the person, the imaginary person at this point, who uh, didn't leave the door open, didn't hold the door open for me long enough. Well, when I walk through and I see my brother smiling there, with a little smirk on his face because he saw me slam my hand, then I get even more angry because I have memories of little things from the past like we all probably do with our siblings. And over dinner, actually, I have a little bit of an upset stomach because I'm a little bit angry. And so this is the second arrow. I start spinning out. Why, did, why didn't he hold the door for me? start telling myself stories. It goes on and on. It lasts a lot longer than the pain of the hand being hit by the door. So this is the secondary. arrow. The reaction happens very simply in a moment. There's a stimulation, and there's the response. I didn't have time in the moment, even though I was a meditator, right? even though I've been practicing mindfulness, to just feel the pain and not let the mind go further. So this is the 95% problem, I'll call it. Now, let's turn to the other person, the enlightened being. There's a little store, I was brought up in New Hampshire in a little town, and there's a store nearby, uh, fairly close to the town where I live. It's called the 5% solution. So guess what? Guess what the enlightened being is? They live in the 5% solution. So what happens to an enlightened being? It sounds pretty radical that there could be such a difference. So they have the same stimulus, but a different response, okay? Okay. Same pain, but the enlightened being, that's it. They just feel the pain. There's nothing else. The enlightened being has no aversion or no attraction in the response in the moment of contact. But the enlightened being, as far as I understand, would feel it because they are human. Um, I'll give an example of Maybe a semi-enlightened being, there was this, and, and how this actually functions to go a little deeper into what actually happens in our minds. Um, there was a, a study done. It was actually they took a bunch of people and they hitched them up to machines that uh, monitored brain frequency, how the brain changed, it was emotional response, I think, brain activity and emotional activity, after a strong sense impression, okay? So they took different subjects, and they gave them maybe it was a, large, uh, a loud, sharp sound, unpleasant sound. So what would happen to uh, a regular human being, a normal person, an unlightened being, is that on the graph, when they heard the sound, that the spi- there would be a spike. Okay? And then over the next ensuing minutes, you would see, and this is, a, this is the impression and this is the time, you would see the spike going up and down. You would see the, the, the mind moving. It would, it, would, it would register the fluctuations of the mind. And then eventually, it would come back to its steady state, where it was before, Okay, a calm starting state. Now, when the same thing was done with the Zen master, what do you think happened? went straight up, Okay, same impression, but then very quickly, it came down to a steady state, back to the calm state of mind. So all this space in here, if we, if we go through time. All these movements, that's what we would call the second arrow of suffering. The difference between the enlightened and the unenlightened being. The, un, the enlightened being has the capacity, let's say, of leaving the moment alone. We, if we read Dharma books, and we hear this all the time, just letting things be as they are. Not filling experience with proliferation, with commenting, with judging. What would it be like to live this way? The Buddha spoke of a possibility of living with a kind of radical independence of mind. Not an independence materially. As you could tell, he wasn't the richest guy in the world. (laughs) You know his story. He was dependent on others. Not even independence from experiencing the vicissitudes of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. But a tremendous capacity to experience whatever is arising in a very different way, in a new way, to hold whatever arises with a newfound wakefulness and ease, to see the movements of mind, heart, and body clearly without being shaken, to touch a deep inner peace and silence, and at the same time to be able to touch not to be able to be touched by life, not to necessarily run away. It is a radical project to try to uncover, uh, live in some sense in this way, that I believe that the, the Buddha proposed. It's certainly one that I don't claim to have mastered at all, but perhaps I've explored enough to know that it is worth a closer look. The exploration in a journey from the habitual ways of knowing and responding to life to those that are not clearly known, but have the potential for greater freedom is what we're talking about here. In scientific um, research, discoveries are sometimes ignored because scientific inquiry overlooks important and valuable information that is right in front of the researcher because they're looking in habituated ways. They're not seeing freshly. It colors their inquiry. The Buddha is, in a way, asking us to be internal scientists, exploring our own internal discovery channel. Has anyone watched that on TV? Well, here's the real one. Here's a strong one, right in here. So uh, he asks us to look at our own internal discovery channel and not allow ourselves learn how not to uh, have our perceptions colored by our habit patterns, so that we don't uh, miss the valuable information that isn't right in front of us, in the case of a scientist, but is right inside of us. The Buddha's teaching can be called one of, the psych- of a psychology of momentariness. Life is lived. Truths are known only in moments. Freedom is gained and lived uh, as we saw from the example of the enlightened person, just by being fully present, just the moment's experience known fully. What we have begun and will continue to explore tonight again is how much of our lives are actually lived on the premise of a psychology of not meeting the moment. How we shoot ourselves with the second arrow by avoiding the truth of the now. Who was it that said, I don't know the answer to this, man can only handle so much reality? So why do we have so much difficulty being with the simple reality of life as it arises, without pushing, pulling, or ignoring it in any way? Why do we attempt to take flight from the 5% difficulty to embracing, taking on the 95%? Just think how much energy is wasted in the process that could be put to better use. We don't seem to have a choice. Let's go back to the sutta. And looking, this is the core of the sutta now, and this will give us a better indication as we slowly discover how this process unfolds. And through slowly exploring how it unfolds, we can start to see how to unpack it, how to find um, a way to counteract these tendencies. So in experiencing, this is the sutta, in experiencing an unpleasant feeling, an unenlightened being feels aversion. Displeased over that unpleasant feeling, latent tendencies to aversion are accumulated. Confronted with unpleasant feeling, he seeks delight in sense pleasures. Why so? Because the unenlightened being knows no other way, like, say, the practice Out of unpleasant experience than to seek the distraction of sense pleasures. Delighting thus in sense pleasures, latent tendencies to attachment are accumulated. So this is the basic problem. There's two ways that the unenlightened being reacts. And you probably know what happens with the enlightened being, so we don't have to go through that one again. When unpleasant unpleasant experience arises the unenlightened being reacts with aversion. Can we relate to this? Yes? You don't like something? Okay. Someone gets mad at you. Uh, something doesn't go your way. We'll give examples, of course. Then we get aversion right in the moment. So, the more we stay, it says that displeased over that unpleasant feeling, latent to to aversion are accumulated. So when we stay with that aversive energy, it goes, in a way, deeper in the psyche. Okay? It's called a latent tendency. We'll explore more how this works later on. But fundamentally, it goes, it goes to a deeper reactive level in our psyches. And confronted with unpleasant experience, here's the other option, or it can happen after the aversion. He seeks sense pleasure to escape from the unpleasant. That's what we saw earlier in the sutta. The unenlightened being knows no other way out of unpleasant experience. So it's saying it's a very deeply ingrained pattern. We have to, this is just what we do. We escape unpleasant experience by going towards the pleasant, either via aversion, okay, or not. So let's give a really concrete example from a situation. Let's say you're at work. Very simple, very simple. Not if you can do. It, if you understand what's going on here. Okay, some people. <laughs> Let's say you're at work, and you and your boss are working on a project, um, and you have an idea of how to do it, and your boss has an idea how to do it, and you're pretty clear that yours is the right way to do it. Uh, but because the boss is the boss, guess what happens? After a lot of conversation, the boss gets his way. So after the decision is made and the boss goes away, you sit there and you get angry inside yourself. Why didn't it happen my way? We don't get what we want. It's unpleasant. I had the better idea. We start this self-talk that we all know so well, and we stay with this for a while. And then after about five minutes or so, perhaps, we find ourselves uh, at we find ourselves getting a cup of coffee and putting a little extra cream in. It. We had a cup of coffee a half hour before and we usually don't have another one, but there we are. And we feel a little better when we're sipping that coffee. But we thought we were—we thought we really needed it. So what is that? Very, very simple example. First feeling aversion, not tolerating, not being able to stay with, this, with the feeling, and then moving towards relief through sense pleasure. So what do we have here in terms of the arrows? It's very simple. We get our first arrow of not getting what we want, right? We want our project. We want our way of doing it to to be approved. We don't get it. Second arrow, we have pain, aversion, and we try to escape into sensual pleasure. The latent tendencies to that movement get strengthened. And the more we do this, the stronger they get. The basic, real basic movement here, as you can see, is that we... There's a cycle in every moment's experience. We have contact, then there's a feeling tone. We respond to that by either craving or clinging after we have the feeling tone. So here we're trying to push away the aversion and then we move towards the pleasant. Once we get the pleasant, we try to hold on to it. If we have the aversion, we try to push it away. Very simple. We can see it over and over functioning. The basic premise here is that we're looking for pleasant experience. That's our escape. It can be mental objects. It can be physical objects. That's how we find our happiness. And we do it over and over and over again. Habituated patterns of doing it. Look at the roots of all kinds of addictions. What do you think they are? If anyone, I mean, uh, we can all probably relate in our own ways to addictions to food or alcohol or sex or work or anything. And when do we find ourselves moving deeply into those patterns and strengthening them? A lot of it is probably when there's something uncomfortable, when we feel some level of displeasure, okay? And that's our response. And we get a relative comfort when we're in our addictive pattern. We know it, and that's the trick about habituated patterns, is that somehow, whether they're pleasant, even if they're unpleasant, we get comfortable with the feeling, and there's an underlying quality of satisfaction in holding on to that. But it doesn't stop. It keeps the cycle alive. So when we're outside of it, when we're not in the addictive pattern, and we're in a place, a state that is less satisfactory, and when it gets intolerable for us, we shift back into it. Okay? So it happens over and over again. So I want to now move to... Um, Look a little more closely at one of the teachings that it's a little more subtle teaching and we've been looking at the objective experience relationship to the outside Okay, now I want to look at what we what comprises the subjective experience of someone who Call it call it ourselves. Okay from a point of view and we'll get a closer We'll get a better look here. I don't want to go too deeply into it. There's many sophisticated texts on it and many of them can be very intellectual um, but it gives us a better sense of actually, what are the roots? What are the foundations of this process? Why does this happen? What's going on? So th- what they're called five, uh, elements, five pieces of what makes up an individual that it has experience. And they're, they're the form. There's feeling, the feeling tone exists. Um, there's, uh, Perception of, of objects, we identify objects as being this or being that, very simple. There's mental formations, which is borrowing, it's using what we know from the past to influence how we respond in the present to a situation, and then project that into the future as well. And there's the quality of knowing, consciousness. So in this cycle, we have three aspects that are based on past conditioning. Feeling, our perception of objects, identification of objects, and the movements of the mind from the past to the future so how we live very much um, is determined by the internal workings of this mechanism it's what makes up our ego structures it what makes up how we go through the day in a sense so and thought is very very fundamental in that so we uh, let's just take how we process experience we have we identify things throughout the day okay we respond to external stimulation pleasant unpleasant neutral we have a mind that is conditioned from the past that is making comments on this this whole process do i like this do i not like this if i don't like oh should i fantasize should i plan for the future based on the past my experience of the past okay um, it's it's a cluster of events it's a cluster of, of movements that all together form what we call uh, an ego, who we, how we function. And there's no problem with it. There are certain traps in terms of uh, thoughts. Thoughts can be tremendous in terms of, we're looking at everything is in reference to the two arrows here. Uh, in terms of fantasies, for example, can be very, very seductive. So we can get lost in fantasies for a long time. We can seek pleasure sometimes. It feels more dependable on the inside than on the outside. But really all these things together are aggregates. The problem with them not is that they exist but that we cling to them. They're called aggregates of clinging. We hold them. And through clinging to these. The more we cling, the more that we uh, tend to identify. There's a, basic pro- there's a basic process that happens in our experience when we cling more and more and more, then identification forms. Have you ever s- I was just thinking about this earlier before I came over here. Have you ever seen um, how dogs and their owners, sometimes if they've, been th- if they've been together for a long time, they start to look like each other? Like they take on the character. Of each other? actual. So there's, there's a certain level of identification that's going on there, isn't there? And they've been together for so long, and that's, uh, that, that's actually that's just a statement of clinging, the, the more you are with something. And they may be very dependent on each other. But it you, actually takes on um, the form of the object that you cling to. So there's an intrinsic... That Basically what happens is that we cling to this functioning of the mind. We give it a life of its own for the ego it's not a problem of ego functioning because we need the ego to function it's it, it, what moves us through the world uh, it's, what, it's, it's where how creativity happens it's how we uh, create buildings like this and computers and everything else how we, how we pay the bills and you know we have to negotiate life to, do, to, to deal with it and we learn from the past to do this we don't throw out the past we have to it's just simply what happens but can we let this happen can we, can we not identify with it Why do we identify with it? We get very entranced by it. It's like thoughts. Thoughts happen. Sometimes we get really, we start to believe our thoughts, don't we? Even if they're completely irrelevant. There's a bumper sticker in Cambridge I saw once, I think, or someone told me about. It says, don't believe everything you think. (laughs) because it's a trap. (laughs) But we do. We believe that this ego functioning is, it turns into ego identification. There's a quality of self there. It's a problem of a, the, uh, uh, the servant, okay? These should serve something. The servant becoming the master. It's a little like if we've hired someone to uh, come in and say do some gardening in our house uh, for our yard. And pretty soon, after, before we know it, the person is uh, telling us uh, where to live and who to marry. In other words, they've become our master. And we just, they were just there to help us out. <coughs> Did anyone here see the movie 2001 Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick? Right? Okay, good. Remember the basic theme of that? Um, and Arthur, it was, it was based on a book by Arthur C. Clarke. And I've heard that the uh, screenplay was co-written, or it was helped by a, Arthur C. Clarke lived in Sri Lanka, was written by a Vipassana meditator, so it's, uh, he got some assistance from a monk there, um, so the story of the, of the movie is, it's about a spaceship, and there's a computer on the spaceship that's, uh, it's on the spaceship to help run the ship, help it to get where it's going. But the, the computer gets so intelligent, and gets so powerful internally, and guess what? It Decides to take over the ship, decides to run it itself, and the humans uh, have a heck of a time dealing with it. Get the point? <laughs> Who's hell? <how? laughs> so all of this, it, and actually what happens when we believe when the, that takes on its own life, then it, it starts functioning in a way to protect itself, to keep pleasant experience for itself and not to experience the unpleasant. It's what happens when we create self. So we can go back to the arrows teaching again. Okay? We've got two things now. We've got one, the fact that we move towards pleasant experience and avoid the unpleasant. Okay? That it seems to be built in. We've got a second one, that there seems to be a, we impute an identity, that there's this kind of an ego functioning, that uh, identification that happens within us. And that they're both based on Conditioning. They're both based on the past and filters, layers in our experience that don't allow us to be with the present, that get in the way of us seeing very clearly just what's happening. And as we saw from the enlightened person, that's where freedom is. Freedom is in moments, psychological moments of the now. So, now that we've looked at the problem from a number of angles, including the structure of who what actually makes up to what we, who we believe ourselves to be, uh, now that we've looked at the problem clearly, let's address it. Joseph Goldstein, who's uh, one of my teachers, one of the founders of IMS, he tells a story that I love. He says there's a bunch of people that are in discomfort, that are hot, and they're seeking relief from their from their discomfort. Before them, there's two, two ways they can go to seek relief. One, there's a cool pool on one side in front of them. And on the other hand, there's a fire. What would you choose? So beings choose and they go in one or the other. And spontaneously, as they go into one, they appear in the other one where they stay. So those that go in the fire, the unpleasant experience, are appear spontaneously in the cool pool. Those that go in the cool pool, sensual pleasure, are spontaneously appearing in the fire where they're suffering. Okay, so what's that saying? We run to pleasure and we create more pain. We face the pain and guess what? experience happiness I like the metaphor very much obviously the fire people faced the first arrow faced the first arrow and didn't add additional suffering the others created the second by deciding to run from the first what I've been pointing to all along is that we try to do is go for happiness and what we end up with is the second arrow of difficulty of pain We might call this overall process an optical delusion of the mind. We don't see the situation clearly. Based on the misperception that chasing after and clinging to impermanent sense pleasures will get us uh, reliable psychological happiness. That's the misconception. We found the conditioning from the past through functioning of the mind activities and habituated tendencies, controls how we respond to situations in the present. Like the computer Hal, through mistaken identity, we impute stability where there is none. The, The conditioned mind doesn't understand that it is bound up in endless cycles of reactivity, past conditioning, present, leading to the future, over and over again it actually seems that there's no way out, and the more we crave, cling, and become in the cycle. Chasing after impermanent sense pleasures, the stronger the tendencies to do so become, as we saw from the sutta. And for me, the saddest part of the whole thing is that in the process, we tend to cut ourselves off from what I believe in is our greatest source of reliable psychological nourishment that we have and that's the truth that is found right here in ourselves without chasing anywhere we lose the nourishment possible by meeting the moment fully by creating a split a conflict between the present experience and where we would like it to be or should be so there's this inner dialogue that we're having all that i mean it seems to be going on quite commonly when we suffer the life is the way it is right but it shouldn't be that way it should be different Can people relate to that? I know that I I experience it all the time. You know, there shouldn't be that noise from outside. My friends shouldn't have treated me that way, but they did, but they did. Life never ceases to be just the way it is. Sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't. But the inner dialogue based on all these conditionings is continuously commenting, making judgments, and trying to, it's moving away it's moving away from what actually exists. And the gap, that space in between, it takes tremendous energy. There's so much energy that goes into that into that gap in between the way things are and the way we want them to be, or should be, the value judgments we make to be different. So it happened when I was with uh, this situation, my brother, for example, with the door. Okay? It shouldn't that door shouldn't have slammed. And then all the thought processes afterwards, everything that came after that. He shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have been the way I am. This shouldn't have happened. Conflict, pain, moving away from the moment. What about just being with the ouch? Huh? What about just the ouch? Condition responses exist in time. They feed off the past and create the future it's how we use our energy investing in them it's like building a golden or iron or rope link fence okay or a line it's actually like a rope like a rope line that we follow we go from one link to the next to the next craving clinging aversion pushing keep working uh It's like Larry says sometimes, it's like chasing after bigger and better, like monkeys chasing after bigger and better bananas in the mind or in things from the outside. It's object-based. We keep going after one, after the other, after the other. Okay? So it's linked. If we're well off, it's golden. If we're okay, it's iron. If we're not so fortunate, maybe it's a a rope. (laughs) Doesn't matter. We keep doing it. Same thing. We think it's leading to happiness, getting us from the unpleasant to the pleasant, but we don't see what it actually is. The Buddha might say that it's actually a chain-link fence that runs in a closed circle, and we're on the inside. The mind-inside-time boundary activity is caught. Like Hanshan, who was a uh, a Chinese Zen practitioner I liked very well, he used to carry around his poetry, said, it's like we're ants trapped in a sugar bowl running around all day long chasing after pieces of sugar. Until one day, we've grown old. But the Buddha said we can get out of the bowl. He said we can cut the link in the fence and get out, taste the freedom outside the known conditioned responses. And here's, here's how we do this. The answer couldn't be more simple. We all know the answer anyways, don't we? By being totally present in what is happening in the moment's experience, and not cultivating conditioned responses that pull us in any direction at all. By seeing what arises in the now clearly and deeply, that is enough, just as it is. We don't need to change it, run from it. We don't need to run anywhere else at all. The Buddha spoke of freedom in terms of wisdom. If the whole cycle of becoming is based on delusion... Not seeing clearly and being caught in time, then freedom is seen as its antidote. We see in something we see something just as it, as it is, complete, full. We see it in a way. This is the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Insight meditation, vipassana, vipassana, means special seeing, clearly seeing. It stops the chain reaction. It breaks the link. It starts to pull the plug on how from the movie. Perhaps we have experienced before, perhaps in nature or with the sound, even in the sound of a city street, where we experienced just the moment, all the qualities, our mind paused for a moment and was fully present. In that moment, and this I'm just saying naturally, I'm not saying as a practice, as a fruit of practice. Okay, and this happens sometimes. In that moment, the restless meanderings of the mind are quiet. It sees the mind. It it clearly knows. And then somehow in the moment when we're very, very present, it tends to happen more with pleasant experience. (laughs) Of course, it's easier to be with. But it doesn't have to. Then the mind is wonderfully refreshed. I've heard it referred to as life giving to life. Fully present, life giving to life. There's an amazing nourishment. It is like our whole structure of meaning makes, it it shifts radically. We taste the fruits of the psychology of momentariness, of living in the now. It's self-revealing. The Buddha gave very simple instructions on how to practice. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the felt, just the felt. In the sense, just the sense. And in the cognized, even in the thinking process, just the cognized. Nothing added. So how do we do this? Cut the link. Be nourished in the moment. Simply by being mindful. attentive to just what is present. Get out of the cycle and see. So mindfulness, as we're using it here, has two qualities. It's non-conceptual, so it's not bound up by all the conceptual structures that we were talking of, the functioning of the internal workings of the mind, okay? the internal supportive mechanisms of conceptual world. And it happens only in the present moment, just in the now. Where does it happen? Anywhere that the mind can be attentive, can attend to experience. Right now, listening feeling yourself on the cushion, whatever emotions are arising in you, whatever thoughts are happening just in the moment. The Buddha spoke of classically of four foundations of mindfulness, three of which are very useful for us here. In this discussion body, feelings, and mind, emotions. There's a New Age phrase that says if you can feel it, you can heal it but you have to feel it fully (laughs) with nothing extra. And the healing is in the mind. It closes the split. The conflict between what is and what should be. The mental afflictions of greed, aversion, and confusion we've been speaking of. The conditioned responses that throw us out of nourishment in the moment aren't functioning then. When mindful, we are not being pulled around by sense impressions. We can relax. So great, just to be mindful, just to stay present. Just let go of your feelings, right? Just let go of what's troubling you. That's common parlance right now, isn't it? I've heard people walking on the street, oh, just let go, just let go. You know, it's no problem, just let go of it. So what happens when we try? The conditioned patterns still function. More times than not. And now, since we know the answer, or at least if we think, oh, it would be good to be mindful, just simply be mindful, then uh, we've created a split out of this. We said, you should be mindful. We've created another way to suffer. We're in the same old trap. So what did the Buddha recommend? This is a very important point. He said, use the resources we have, including the Mind of the past, including intention, reflection, to change the underlying tendencies of mind that keep the heart and mind bound. So use the resources that are available. After all this talk on how the thinking mind, the planning mind, the mind that draws from past experience and leads into the future, is bound up in the second arrow, creating the second arrow of suffering, shooting ourselves with that second arrow. How can it be that these mechanisms are involved in getting rid of this arrow? Remember I said the phrase that the mind is a good servant but a bad master? So too, for memories can serve, thoughts can serve. It's mistaken identity, the delusion, that gives the mental life its title as a ruler. Ajahn Mun, who was the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition, um, teacher of uh, Ajahn Chah, many other great teachers. I've had the good fortune to be able to practice with some of them. Uh, He said, uh, it is good to love freedom. It is good to love freedom. It is important to have a goal, an orientation. Loving freedom is not the same as living freedom it is still a structure in the mind that has the danger of creating a split between things as they are and should be. This gap, when the orientation is to escape unpleasant, can be filled with the seeds of more suffering. When it is filled with using the content of mind to create the conditions to not invest, not create the second arrow arising, then the results will be different. If our love is to walk the path which means learning to be more fully in the now and create the circumstances to do that, then we need to have reminders to do this. Memory, reflection. We don't throw out the baby of the power of intention and direction of thought with the bathwater of a mistaken identity and craving, clinging, and pushing away. When the Buddha was practicing at a particular point in his practice, this was uh, before, before he was enlightened, um, I guess he was in a pretty tough place. I guess it was, maybe it was one of these periods when he was eating one grain of rice a day or something. It was a real aesthetic. Um, he had the memory of when he was a kid and he was sitting under a rose apple tree. I guess when he was, the story says he was six years old. And he remembered such a peace of mind, a balance of mind that that memory prompted him to change the way he practiced it prompted him to eat more and it said that after he gained a balanced strength he was able to practice until enlightenment there is a holistic approach here to create the best conditions for conditions learning from the past to try to create conditions of body and mind that help us to be freer happier more balanced in the present and future The common sense approach of taking care with the body and the mind, using our reflective capacity like the Buddha did, is very important. I teach yoga here. Larry asked me to do out of do it out of a place, I believe, of compassion for the suffering, the difficulties that we face, when we try to look for sustained periods at just what is arising in the body and the mind as we sit. It can be good to prepare the way for the journey so that it is smoother, and we have more resources to draw on in times of need. Of course, in terms of doing yoga, of being careful with diet, etc., no matter what we do, the body eventually will go its own way. It is a fact. So our approach to such activities, as with the use of reflection on the past, must be in the service of this love of awakening, of moving more deeply into the capacity to be in the now, into the newness of it, not the oldness of conditioned responses, the love of awakening gives us direction, reflection and skillful use of the mind and body help us to follow that direction. The direction is of course the orientation to be fully in the now, and it should be clear that our reflective thinking capacity is limited, even our love of freedom is certainly not freedom itself. But again, I ask the question, why go through all these reflections? Why not simply be mindful? We can't because we don't have the tools to do so. Our minds simply aren't developed enough in the aspects of being able to stay with experience to do the job required to cut the link and get out of the fence of habitual conditioned responses. So the Buddha laid out a path to help us create the conditions that could do this. And consisted in three trainings... Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. And these are Pali words from the early Buddhist teaching. Sila, or ethics, is concerned with how we act in the world so that we have enough space and inner harmony so that the mind can move more easily and settle down and be present. It is a training in being sensitive and respectful in our actions to ourselves and others. Samadhi, or concentration, is the quality of strengthening the mind, through staying with one object for periods of time, so that it is fit to do the work of investigating experience in an ongoing way. We use the breath much here, some more body, some more sound. We learn how to give the mind a refuge that is other than the unrelenting one of chasing after experience. Panya or wisdom is the process of a mind that is fit, strong, supple, to look into experience. Investigate it clearly, see it deeply, And in this seeing, the walls of limitation in our minds and hearts can fall away. In the practice, concentration and wisdom often work together. Mindfulness is the master key. And as the finger that points to the moon is not the moon, nor even the spaceship we build to get there, the moon is simply the moon. The moment is simply the moment. When we touch it deeply, we know it, mindfully. So the path is actually... So the path is actually not the fruit of the path. The doing mind can never be non-doing. Practice is not enlightenment. Enlightenment, as one teacher has said, is an accident. But practice does make us (laughs) (laughs) accident-prone. It can be helpful to see how the path might unfold in a functional way as, as one of us, as a meditator, meditation student, um, because this place of utter acceptance is certainly where very few of us start from. As we explore, we will explore both formal practice and daily life. Okay, So this is just something I thought of um, this morning. In fact, generally, we start from the place where we are caught in habitual reactive patterns of intolerance. So that's the first category. Intolerance for the painful experiences... Okay, that's the place of not feeling fully the first era, intolerant of unpleasant experience. This is where, in our experience, where mindfulness is weak, when we cannot tolerate the moment's experience well. We, we, we may want to stay with the moment, but we simply don't seem to be able to. In sitting practice, we literally are dragged all over the place in our minds. We don't connect, connect much with the breath or anything else and get drained of energy in the process of trying. Do we all have sits like this? Okay. In daily life, we act out a lot. We go for that cup of coffee. We head to the fridge when there's a little conflict with our partner. We escape in actions and in thoughts, classically creating the second arrow. We also get tired. Then, with training, we come to a place where we create more tolerance with endurance. Endurance of the pain. Remember, we're talking about the two arrows. The mind still struggles and gets fatigued. But there are also moments of connecting to experience, and we gain some energy. Here we have some mindfulness. We can stay a little longer with experience in sitting. Perhaps the breath or sensations an emotion. We can be with them without spinning out. Concentration has increased, but it is fleeting. Okay, so we know that one, right? Pretty well. Go back and forth. I have an example of this. Uh, When I was training in a Zen monastery in the mid-1980s in Japan, I was looking for a monastery to practice in, and I went to one place, which is very famous. It was the place where Dogen Zenji, if you're familiar with his Zen, um, the one he founded. So I wanted to train there. So I went there, and uh, it, they put me through a tremendous. Uh, basically, they were irresponsible in the way they dealt with me and the other practitioners. They made us sit for incredibly long periods of time with with, with no proper instruction. And I remember uh, just once it just going on and on and on, and it was so bad that there were tears of pain in my eyes. And the and the, the guy who was leading the sit came to me and actually said, "If you leave, uh, you're you're out of the monastery. If you move, you're out of the monastery." It was ruthless. <laughs> And I saw my mind going back and forth in these cycles of being able to be present with myself, find a sense of refuge in the breath and the sensations in the body of being present, and then spinning out into fits of anger and rage. And I can't believe that you're doing this to me. And this is the worst monster. And I'm getting out of here. Of course, I did leave uh, pretty quickly. Um, So it was back and forth. There was a tolerance and an endurance but it was based very much on ego strength. It was based on my will. And we can probably relate to that in practice. When we will ourselves through something, the factors of mind really aren't balanced, but we're just pushing through it. Okay? And we go back and forth between escaping and being present. So in life, this is going in and out of being present. Let's say we're in a difficult interaction. Moments of interest, Getting out of the way and listening to somebody, so being present. And moments of not getting back into our agendas, and what what does this person have to uh, you know? What are they going to get me? And feeling drained and feeling energized back and forth, and then feeling like there was mixed results. So this is tolerance and endurance. The next one is strength, and this is a place. That's akin to concentration. This is a place where the mind has been has been cultivated, the capacity to be firm and stable in itself for periods of time. There can be a removal in the mind um, from experience, unpleasant experience for a time, but not an escape into sense pleasure. Something that we uh, is neutral in a way, a neutral object like the breath, where there's happiness that's available inside, not dependent on created experience, internal or external. The mind gets renewed and nourished. It's one real way to know how the practice is going. At least that's how I see it. The settings can be longer. In life, we know how to change the channel. If there's difficult uh, emotions going on, if we feel anger, for example, we can take a breath, connect with our feet, hear a sound. We can switch out of it and be focused on something that is, that is renewing. Instead, we can do that. We're still not connected if we're in a situation with somebody. Let's say it's difficult to the person. But at least we have inner strength and aren't adding more fire fire in our minds if there's a conflict. The last one is seeing clearly. Here the strength of mind is opened up to experience. And we can see clearly the nature of the experience. We no longer have to defend ourselves in any way. That sense of struggle between what is and what should be isn't there. There is a buoyancy of mind that holds experience and we can see clearly what arises. There may be a a dropping, the feeling of separation and intimacy. No fear, no separation, no second arrow. The mind may become very quiet. Pain here doesn't even feel like the first arrow. It just is another event being known. Uh, I have an example of this small example of this from my own experience while I was uh, practicing in Thailand. I was a monk for some time there. And one practice I was working with was physical pain, which is very very good for working with this this sutra. So I was sitting with the pain for um, some time, and I was going through phases of struggling, of tolerance, um, uh, and I came to a place of strength where the mind uh, was strongly... In a place of, of inner strength. And at a certain point, the struggle to be with the pain ceased. I opened to it. The mind became quiet. And for a while, the pain became not a problem at all. Very interesting, in fact. Now, at some point, the struggle came back. Darn it, I didn't get enlightened. But at least for a while, <laughs> not. I wasn't shooting myself with a second arrow, and it was such a relief, even to know that, just for a few moments, or a few, you know, however long. There is such stillness and nourishment when we put down the struggle. In daily life, the mind would have an inner nourishment ease and an outer receptivity. Clear, fee, clear seeing functions to know a situation, a person, in a way that maybe quite clear, connected, but without a lot of inner dialogue. Do people know that in the relationships at times when you're just really attuned to... uh, You've dropped your story. You might be noticing nuances, like in the scientific inquiry. You might be noticing the things that we overlook. You might just see the person in a different way, notice the nuances of how their face is, or just uh, feel their energy in a different way, the tone of their voice, feel a different quality of... um, of the emotions that are arising, but be fully present with it and somehow be still and be nourished in the process. Okay? So there's insight. We learn things in, that, in those times. Now, in the last example that I gave for myself, the results, this was kind of the result of very slow, very gradual, learning how not to shoot myself with the second arrow. Okay? I was able to tolerate to be with the pain and to see into it for a time. This same process is still what I'm doing, and I'm sure what I'll be doing for a long time to come. The goal of practice is to actually get the underlying tendencies and uproot them. Such practice as we're talking about here weakens these tendencies. This is life on the path of practice. We go back and forth. The more we practice, the more we change the underlying tendencies. The more we react in outer ways, to habitual ways of responding, the more they get strengthened. So the path has signposts, if you will. We practice and progress on one level, sila, samadhi, and panya. On another level, the fruits happen only in moments. There's different types of focusing the mind, different ways that all affect the second arrow, the creation of the second arrow, or the lack of creation of the second arrow. One, as we spoke of, is concentration, staying clearly with experience, one object blocking out the others. In this scenario, the underlying tendencies of the second arrow, uh, the underlying tendencies which create the second arrow don't get strengthened, okay? It's like we get out of, we get out of the game for a while, but we're also not uprooting the underlying tendencies. A second way that when the mind is strong and focused, and we may work in both of these ways at times, is to have an open a more spacious awareness. Not fixed on one object, but very open, where the mind is still quiet. And in this can tolerate much more experience. We don't have to react. It's like you put a little bit of salt in a small cup, and it's really salty, right? If you put it in a big bathtub or something, then you don't taste the salt so much. So we can be with more difficult experience if the mind is spacious and open. Joseph uh, Goldstein has said that the whole practice is actually expanding the container of what we can be with. So here, what happens to the tendency? The second arrow, do we shoot ourselves? What do you think? I don't have an answer. The third one is when we see clearly, we can, and we can see clearly from this place too. We see really clearly into experience. As it arises, we notice it fully. And all the energy that is trapped in keeping that down is released. We know it. We feel lighter. It's akin to the word enlightenment. We get lighter. We feel it. When we have insights, something lets go. A burden is dropped. Energy is released. The second arrow is not only not nourished, it is let go of. So, ultimately, the practice is to stay with life, just as it is. We've spoken tonight, spoken tonight, about the the two arrows. So the suffering that, or the, the pain that exists in life, and then the pain that we create on top of what life presents to us. If we open that out, it's simply... Life presents things to us. Life presents itself to us all the time. And do we react and push that away? And if we do, then the Buddha proposed a path. Here's how we can work with that. Here's how we can develop the capacity to be with it more. And then eventually, here's how we can meet it, whatever its forms are, directly in the moment, and be nourished by the moment. To me, that's really the key, is that we we know that life is alive, that there's meaning There's meaning that happens when we meet experience fully and directly. Okay? There's nourishment. Each moment by moment. Nothing's left out. So I want to end with a story from Krishnamurti. He was a great Indian teacher. And it's said that he had cancer of the pancreas and was in a hospital in Los Angeles. The doctor said to him, Krishnaji, (laughs) probably an Indian doctor, please allow us to give you a painkiller. I read this from an Indian book. So in Indian uh, pronoun, they say, please allow us to give you painkiller. There's no A. Okay, not too many of you have been to India. I spent a lot of time there. <laughs> please take it. And Krishnaji looked at the doctor and said, sir, is not pain a part of living? Let us live through it. Do you see what living is? Is not pain a part of life, Sir? Please let us live through it. Let's sit for a minute. Okay, Thank you very much for listening, for sharing It's time. Um, it's actually a little late. I apologize for those who I've held back. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left, and for those of you who would like to leave now, please do so. And for the others, I'm here for questions uh, and answers if anybody has anything they'd like to discuss. And you don't have to wait. You can, you can start right in if anyone's got anything they'd like to ask or comment on as well. So was that a complete teaching? There's nothing <laughs> left to be discussed? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> no more second arrows being fired, huh? <laughs> Please. Uh, I really liked uh, the quote you started
1: with about the 5% and the 95%. Mm-hmm. part of the survival mechanism, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. you pull your hand away from a hot object to prevent yourself Good. from getting burned, and you try to heal yourself. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, how do you balance
0: being in the moment and staying alive? That is being in the moment. Um, I actually had to cut the talk down, and there was a, there was a whole piece on that. There's. Uh, <laughs> That's no, that's no good answer though, is it? <laughs> um, it's part of it's 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 part of the what what I called in the talk the ego functioning versus ego identification. So it's not that it's not that we don't take care of ourselves. As a matter of fact, I think when when we're working in harmony, um, when things are balanced, we actually respond more quickly and accurately in situations. There's not so many conflicting signals from our minds about how to respond to a situation. So if we, yeah, if, if, there's, if, we, if we burn ourselves, then we don't spend a lot of time actually thinking about what to do. Oh, th- th- I burn myself on the stove because, I mean, you were saying avoid burning yourself on the stove, right? But let's say we do burn ourselves. Yeah, you remember. You remember. That's a function of memory. That's a simple function of memory that we remember from the past. And I used a positive example in terms of the practice that the Buddha remembered what it was like to have a, a calm, balanced mind. And so that informed what he did, the decisions he made in the moment going into the future. So it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's, so the memory was serving his purpose. And it would be the same thing here. You want to stay, you don't want to burn yourself. So the memory that you have of avoiding the heat in the past serves you now. Nothing wrong with that. That's skillful you know, ego function, I would say. Or I, I'm not a psychologist. It's just good. There's no problem there. Did you see anywhere that there was a problem in terms of the way that the um, the teachings are presented, either here or, or elsewhere?
1: someone who is sadistic. Mm-hmm. You know, do you stay in a relationship with that person to learn what you can from it, or do you leave it and, you know, how, how do you... Uh,
0: how do you live your life well? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how do you judge when you're, you're both trying to negotiate things like that, and um, but also knowing that a lot of your su- suffering is coming right. from yourself and thinking that you have to run away from things. Like, when There's, is it appropriate
0: to yeah. away? When is it appropriate to... You know, how, and how do you learn that? Uh, hopefully by living life well and <laughs> <laughs> learning from... I mean, a lot of what I think uh, applied dharma is mm-hmm. is simply learning the lessons that we need to in life. In other words, we make mistakes, we get hurt, and we learn. We don't close up over the long term. We don't become bitter, become hardened. We don't... It's So in terms of that, we don't just keep those underlying tendencies of aversion uh, and clinging, we don't strengthen those. So that's not that doesn't answer your question, does it? Because it's not a surface-level answer. It's a deeper level. Um, the, the Buddha spoke to his, his son, Raula. Uh, and he, he, he said, Raula, uh, reflect this way. if Before you do an action, if it's helpful for you and the person you're involved with or others, then if you think it is, then do it. If it's not, then don't do it. While you're doing something, reflect, is this helpful for me and other people that are involved? And then you can change course if you're not. And then reflect afterwards, was this? So if you've made a mistake, you can learn from it. So I would say in the, in the situation of being involved with somebody that's, that's harmful, that there's a, real, there's a lot of um, suffering that's going, that that person is inflicting, okay? either internally or externally, you have to weigh that. You have to see what your own role is in that. You have to see what your own priorities are. Um, and you know, your response, how you choose, how much compassion is there? How much looking at the overall situation and how much, you know, how much are you actually cutting off from the situation of dealing with it? How much are you escaping in the process of making decisions? And how much are you open and learning and staying, just discovering each, each moment along the way. So there's not a fixed answer in that at all, but maybe it's helpful. Okay. (laughs) Please. So they were kind thieves, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Compassionate thieves. I've never heard of it before. was said he
2: didn't have any change. And I could feel myself wanting to get upset because was in the moment of wanting to get here mm-hmm. someone confess, and I did ask some people, you know, I said this happened, and does anyone know about it? And everybody said no. But I didn't, I could feel myself. So all, what I felt, I'm at the stage yet, is I could observe my motions mm-hmm. of my mind going through these things. I couldn't necessarily stop it, but I could stop it enough. I've never met you before, I've been here before, but I was, I wanted to come and be here, because this brings me the second point of how one would combine yoga and
0: so in the service of wanting to get here, I didn't want to stay well in the so upsetness. L- let me let me just was you didn't want to stay in the upsetness? Well the, you because I wanted to get here. If I stayed there worrying about who took my money and asked each person to come forward, so was there any more that you could do there to functionally deal with the situation before you left? I did what I needed You did what you could have done, okay. Yes. Okay, but good. I didn't feel That's important. Upset at it. Okay. So could you you couldn't have done anything else in the situation that would have made you less upset. You were just there was this underlying emotion that was happening, right? And you carried it with you. And so is there a question in what you're it, it seems like this is just what happens. You it's dealt with the situation and then true. you can. Have, yeah. My old me would have stayed there and okay. talked to people. And okay. Okay. meeting, but I this conflict just really You wanted to be here. Yes. Okay, good. So did you get something out of being here? No, so I could just- <laughs> <laughs> So you didn't stay there, right. right? You left, and you dealt with whatever was happening in your emotional life along the way. And you've been dealing it while you're here. And now it's it's alive right now. Whatever's happening in you is happening with you right now, right? So, so I think there's two, and this is actually probably a, a very important teaching. There's two levels that go on in a certain way, and that we have to find the balance. And the first question was addressed to this too. One is in terms of just our mental life, the like, like we call it the psychology of now being present with what's happening okay if there's a split between it should be this way and it is this way we fully on that level we fully feel okay that's where if if we're having a natural quality of awareness whatever is most predominant in our experience if it's an emotion if it's a sensation we stay with it we investigate with it we see its movement we just we're just there with it to the best of our ability that's a fluid way of practicing mindfulness okay So that's a different level than making decisions about how to proceed with a situation where there's a conflict of interest, which is what you're talking about, okay? And there you make a decision. You know, that's based on our past conditioning. That's based on what our priorities are, too. And you simply made a decision. I haven't found that, much to my chagrin many times, that when I'm very invested a lot of times in being with really what's happening in the moment, sometimes it'll help me it'll it'll inform decisions i mean it it definitely informs big decisions like it informs priorities so on a certain level you made a priority you set a priority you were going to be here you wanted to learn the dharma or dharma and yoga so that was more important than following through and asking more questions okay so that's like a macro level decision you made so that's just what happened then once you make that decision and that the influences of that decision can come from many places right it really a lot of the buddhist teachings actually have to do with intention And that simplifies decision-making a lot. What is our intention? What is our goal in a sense? Ajahn Mun I talked about had the love of of awakening, the love of freedom. So if you really love that, and you believe in that these trainings are efficacious to help us experience that, you know, over time and in the moment, then you make certain priorities. Oh, should I meditate right now? Or should I go down to the corner and have an ice cream cone? Because someone's asked me to, you know? And you might say, okay, I'll have the ice cream cone, but I'll do it mindfully doesn't mean you don't cut yourself off from life. But you may say, okay, I want to do this retreat. We, we frame, or I'm going to stop this situation. I've done what I can with my wallet and I want to go hear the Dharma, okay? That's a macro level decision based on our goals. Just try to be clear on that level. It sounds like you were. And, but I don't think that miraculous in my experience, and maybe others can share if it does, I don't think that just being with the moment, the moment's experience, minute by minute, moment by moment, second by second, sometimes that can really help inform decisions that need to be made when the mind gets quieter, sometimes answers just come. It's a creative... There's a kind of intelligence that can function, that can inform our decisions. Sometimes we get very creative. Like on retreats, I mean, I just came back from a, a three-week self-retreat, and there was a lot of creativity that happened at times when the mind was still. Okay, And some of the things that came out of that were clear, and, that, and I, I can follow those. But it's not a guarantee. If we're in the confusion of a situation, the information we get there may not be any more valid than just... A macro level. And that's why reflection is important. And that's why looking at the overall situation is important. Common sense. Okay. It sounds like you did it. You did a good thing. It sounds like it was fine. So the process of being with our experience, that doesn't change. Okay? That doesn't change. And the more we can get a quiet mind through that process, the more we experience moments where there's real quietness, then that tends to help the bigger decisions as well. At least that's what I've found. Is that helpful at all? Yes, no, it was very helpful. I, I, I just felt it was good that it sort of happened because it was right on the topic. And yeah. What I felt was I couldn't
2: exactly still my mind, but what broke the cycle was that I could watch myself. It slowed me down because if you're mm-hmm. watching yourself, what, it, you know, am I going to spin around here and for how long or am I just going to break it? Because I could watch myself being upset. Mm-hmm. Exactly do anything
0: and so then I could by watching myself I couldn't stop the being upset but I could have compassion on myself that's great upset. yeah and then I could say I'm out of here great and that's empowering that actually strengthens the mind that's a very practical I'm out of here okay great if this if this uh, building started burning down do you think we'd sit here and say sit... we'll notice burning bur- conflict I want to sit here but I'm about to die do you think we'd stay with that or we get out right the skillful thing would be just to go get out. It's not, it's not helping ourselves or others in any way. That's why this quality of knowing, it's a holistic approach of knowing the overall situation, you know, uh, is really, really important. And then letting mindfulness serve that and be an aspect of that. But we're not, it's not blind. We're not, you know, it, it's not to be stupid. <laughs> it, sounds like, it sounds like you handled it really well. And um, it's not necessarily, when I talked about a quiet mind, it's really not about trying to create the conditions of that. Because like insight, um, stillness happens of its own. It's really a quality of getting to know ourselves. Like you said, your mind, uh, it quieted down in a way. When you just started to watch what was happening, we just get to know how we're actually functioning internally and how we're responding to situations. That in itself is a very powerful practice. As a matter of fact, that is the practice. This is a way when we sit to strengthen it. Anybody else? It's... uh... It's actually past 9 o'clock. If, any, if everybody would like to leave, you may. And if people want to stay a little longer, if anyone has any questions, then, uh, yeah, just keep asking questions. You can, you can stay or go. Uh, yeah, I got a relationship question. Uh, a don't is ask me. Not a it's not <laughs> no. practice, so it happens. Oh, right. And then I'm like, oh, all
3: right, well, this thing hurt. Um, I take the arrow, everything's
0: hunky-dory. And now I'm what do you mean What do you mean? You take the arrow and everything's hunky-dory? Well, because I go, oh, it's just the second arrow, okay, and so I deal with the situation as it is, and I'm, right. I'm all right with that. Right. You know, for
3: this time I got it right. Yeah. And But now they are not. Right. You know, they they have the second arrow in there, you know, wondering why I'm not on their side with
0: what, the second arrow. What do you mean they're you not? Know. Can you can you be, I mean. Y-
3: for instance,
0: <laughs>
3: say uh um, offended you know because the waiter was mad
0: or, right you okay know, was rude yeah. or something like that yeah
3: so i'm like you know whatever you know mm-hmm. we got our food everything's fine if they're mad they're mad that's not my problem but she's taking a personal affront to this and so we're a couple we're supposed to be you know in this together type of thing and i'm like no honey it's second ever
0: <laughs> <You'd- laughs> nice with that all right i'm gonna need that arrow to pick you know, Wait, on. You're, not going, you're not going anywhere with... So you're basically... Are you saying you're not investing? You're not going to invest in the situation? Uh, right,
3: right. I'm not investing in the second arrow right. together. You know, because I'm like, I'm
0: the second arrow. No. Well, remember, her arrow is... In one sense, her arrow was her arrow, and your arrow was your arrow. Correct. So the place to watch is... And I would ask you, what's happening inside of... If she's doing her second arrow, right? Yeah. Then I'm all right with it. The guy does me at all. No, 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 no. Are you all right with her second arrow? With her getting involved with her reactivity? Uh, no. Okay, that's your second arrow. You just got it. You got your first arrow because you got I unpleasant. Mean, no, I feel bad for her. I mean, that's yeah, pretty much it. You like, Now, how do I sympathize
3: with her without doing that?
0: Doing what? Getting involved with that. That whole, you know, this her... Look, her, it's, it's uh, very... Yeah, with it, it's, yeah, yeah. It's not, so your problem, just to be clear, something's going on with her okay, and the waiter. Clearly. So these are external conditions. okay. You got yourself. Now, just, just deal with her like you would the light bulb, just for a minute. okay. You're not going to deal with her like the light bulb. She's your partner. You're going to be compassionate. Good. <laughs> but in the moment she's, res- she's doing something, you are registering unpleasant, right? Yes. There's a reactivity. That's your reactivity now. It's based on someone else's reactivity, but it's yours. Okay. So how do you deal? I'm interested in how you deal with whatever arises. So it could have been, the light bulb could have exploded and you got, you know, and it hurt your hand. You know, something could have happened, mm-hmm. right? And you would have had a response to that. I would say, okay, how are you dealing with that? This is your partner, mm-hmm. okay? So, but how are you dealing, just for yourself as, a, as your own person, how are you dealing with the fact that she, uh, not even her, but you are receiving From life, a first arrow of unpleasant experience. She's upset, right? She's going off. So, your meal. She's upset because I'm not upset. But your meal is ruined. (laughs) It doesn't matter what. She's upset, simply. Right? So, you're saying she wouldn't be upset if you got upset? Right. Has that happened before? Yes. It happens all the time. So, you get upset? I'm
3: not getting upset with her. Okay.
0: I'll just say one thing I ain't no therapist. Okay, well it sounds like you've got how, how do you deal with it? You got two options, right? Yeah. You can empathize with her. What happens when you do that? When you start getting upset? I don't. I just
3: I just I just try to let it ride it out because I know okay. if you know it's all right eventually she's gonna come.
0: She's it's gonna calm it. down.
3: She's gonna go away. The second arrow disappears.
0: It... Well, look, if you tried other strategies, there's there's one thing in Dharma practice, if it's a difficult situation, sometimes you try to change the channel. If she's a practitioner is she a practitioner? No, that's the whole point. Okay, she's not. She's not. So but she's, she's not, not trying to deal with it, right? No. Right. <laughs> well, she's not. She's not trying to deal with the problem. Okay. Remember, your dilemma. I mean, look, you have to make decisions about you know your relationship and how right. you deal with her, and, no, no, you know, no. all, all that type of stuff. Huh? But doesn't you
3: doesn't even have to be her. It could be anybody on the street.
0: I mean, how do you deal with? Other yeah, people? your mo in your mo. There's a lot of options you can do. But the one sense, if you're doing pure mindfulness practice, then you simply get to know really well. You simply be with what's happening. So if that happens hundred times, you know, each time really get to know the flavor of it, the feeling of it in the body, the mind. Okay? And if the mind if you get distraught if you get distraught, you can take care of yourself by being with the breath, by being with the body, finding a way that you're not your second arrow is not firing off all over the place. Okay? You find a way to take care of yourself in the moment. And the more you do that, then, because you can shut off from the experience, right? You can say, I'm not going to deal with that. But inside, you're not in a good place. Or you can be with what's happening inside yourself, use practice, and then to whatever extent possible, you open up to it, to the emotional response to the situation. And how you respond, does that make sense? Yeah, and how you respond externally, that can be very many different things. There's not a formula there. You may be humorous sometimes. You know what I mean? You may just like there's this thing in practice when when there's a a stuck pattern. One thing is called changing the channel. You're watching a TV show and you don't like it. You switch the channel. Maybe there's something better on. So you can actually through your you know influence in the situation with her. Sometimes you can just shift it up a little bit. Okay, you can you know you can. I'm saying there's different ways Mm -hmm. if the energy and if you're invested in the energy right because you are, and you, you know you're a couple. So, you're really bound up in each other. Then, you're, you're, the way you deal with practice is also dealing with the relationship, right? So, you've got to learn to deal with the energy of the relationship and the energy that's in here. So, how do you do that? Sometimes you can let it be, just as it is. Sometimes you might want to change it. Yeah. Sometimes, you might, do do I mean, sometimes you empathize and you it like. It depends on situation. If I read yeah. the
3: situation, I can either cut it off short or. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you can do that stuff, too. Sometimes, you know, I tell it all the time. I go, do you know how many arguments I stop? Don't not know one.
0: <laughs> That's your practice. But, yeah, but Is it, it a drain? Do you get drained in the process? Uh, no. Okay, good. That's a really good way to tell. I mean, it's a really, really good way to tell to see how well your coping strategy is working is, you know, and how your practice is functioning. If you're not getting upset, getting drained, feeling like, oh, my God, here we go again, then you're probably doing something right. There's probably something that's alive. Because just think about it. It's really, it's about the quality of life meeting life, being able to be with things and actually be nourished by the interactions. If you actually think it's funny, look at this whacked out part of this person that I love. You know, look at them go, look at it go again. It can... (laughs)
3: You gotta be
0: careful with that. (laughs) You don't have to let her, I'm just saying inside your own energy. It's like, you know, we can respond to life in different ways. And... The pro- there's obviously a split, you know, there's this split between how you'd like it to be, you don't want it to be reactive, and how it is. Right. So there's one level, you just be with it as it is. You get to know it. And through getting to know it, it sounds like you do that some, you can actually be energized. Or you can be drained if there's resistance. If you get drained, or if you get angry, then you might want to change the channel. You just really do some mindfulness techniques, you know, or be humorous. There's different, you know, there's no answer. It sounds like it's very ongoing. And, oh, oh yeah, evidently. And if you can just keep, the, keep that attitude, try to keep that attitude of being fresh. Notice, see if you can notice, I would say one thing, see if you can notice something different. Like in a situation, if it's repetitive, and you're getting bored with it, and it's over and over again, see if there's something that's new about it, that's fresh about it. You know, if your mind can meet the moment's experience in a little, like see it with a little, a little different angle. Okay? Okay, thanks. I don't know. Good luck. You know, the Buddha, he told people to go and renounce because relationships got a lot of difficulty in it. It's, it's bound up. <laughs> okay, let's take one more. If anybody has one more and then we'll end. And if no one's got another one. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much for coming.